Hello and welcome to the Emotion of Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and regular listeners will know that I am fascinated by the unspoken, unspoken, unspoken even, rules and expectations that sit around emotions. Um, And if you go back to episode 45 with Eric Heshin, you'll find a researcher's perspective um, on the phenomenon. And today, my guest, Melissa Doman, is an organisational psychologist, former clinical mental health therapist and a mental health at work specialist who's the author of Yes, You Can Talk About Mental Health at Work. Here's why and how to do it really well. Um, and I'm excited today because Mel's going to give us a, a practitioner perspective on, on this phenomenon around the unspoken rules and expectations on emotion. And what I think is particularly interesting is that during our off-air conversation, Mel was sharing with me how having lived in multiple countries and travelled extensively, and I think there's both a workplace and a life experience around um, emotional expression. So let's get our guest on the air. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited for our episode today. It's going to be um, really, really good. I've been looking forward to it as well. Good. Uh, And then as usual for this podcast, we'll open with an unexpected and innocuous question. My my unexpected and innocuous question for today is, um, what are the little things that bring you joy? Oh, what a good question. Um laughing so hard that I start crying. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I just that good deep belly laugh that you only get to have maybe, you know, a couple of times a year. Um gosh, what else? Oh, a really good taco. I love tacos. Oh, do you? Okay. I nice. do. Yay. And then um because I'm a salsa dancer, having a I am I have been a salsa dancer for 18 years okay and I would say another little thing that brings me joy is when I dance with a really good lead and neither of us make a mistake (laughs) during this during the song and it all goes flawlessly (laughs) oh fantastic oh that sounds brilliant yeah (laughs) brilliant um, the, the laughing till you cry one uh, that happened to me. Well, it didn't happen to me personally. I was in a meeting with my team this week and we were talking about something and I remember my team was laughing so hard. She was like, yes. I just need to turn off my camera because I'm crying because I'm laughing so much. Um, oh, and, and it was it's just so do, wonderful. It is wonderful. And it was all to do with um, like a, a, a product that in the UK is called Kraken which is something yeah. it's like a chocolate sauce that you you pour on ice cream. And then when you Ooh. pour it off, the ice cream is meant to set. So it's meant to like set Ooh. really hard and so kind of crack it and eat it. Um, but the current version of the product is it's a bit more like sludging rather than cracking. <laughs> it just doesn't freeze. It doesn't set when you, it, when you pour it onto the... Um, onto the ice cream and she was reading the reviews of the product and it was just she was in absolute fits of hysteria (laughs) it's just this oh gosh it's like a such a form of cathartic release that is so unexpected where you have such a deep like core shattering laugh that you didn't realize that you needed Mm -hmm. and then after you just feel like this incredible release where it just went through what feels like your soul and you just laughed so intensely hard that it feels like it it could have purged anything that had been sitting with you for the last few days. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I do love mm-hmm. it. Good belly laugh. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I do as well. <laughs> and then the the salsa dancing, that, that's not something that came up when we had a conversation like that. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I... A long time ago, I was like, you know, this looks really fun. I have no idea how to do it. I'm just going to turn up at a salsa club and see if someone takes pity on me. And I, that's exactly what I did. I turned up by myself and there was a very, very kind gentleman who ended up being my very first salsa partner for quite some time who took one look at me and was like, I need to teach this person the ropes. (laughs) So, um, I just turned up and he, he showed me, you know, how to do the basics. And the really nice thing is that every city I've lived in, I have found a salsa partner who's kind of leveled up my dancing. And what I love about 
salsa, bachata, other types of Latin dancing is that it's my form of meditation because oh, yeah. I don't actually like to do traditional meditation and yoga I'll do for the fitness, but it's not really my way of um, kind of relaxing and being present. So when I'm dancing, my brain shuts off and my body's just focused on following a hopefully good lead. And um, I, I physically cannot think of anything else other than what's going on right, right in that moment in front of me. So when I do a couple hours of dancing, I feel like I've been meditating because they're so present and just not thinking about anything else. Oh, I, I love that. And I think um, for me, that's one of the, I don't know, I don't know, misunderstandings maybe of meditation in terms of that it has, you know, the, I don't know, there's that sort of stereotypical sat down, legs crossed, yeah. arms, arms in yeah. your lap, and that's what meditation is. And I, I'm with you, you know, so running for me is is one, um, you know, I can just go and run and just you know, be gone for, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half. And, yeah. And just don't think of anything while I'm there apart from running and how it feels to be running and yeah, how the, how the movement feels as you're moving along and stuff like that. So yeah, no, I'm with you completely. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because when speaking as a former therapist, when I tell people that I don't like to meditate or do yoga, it's, it's like sacrilegious, but I'm like, no, 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 there's a different way that I do it. And I, I basically just explained that I do what works for me, uh, which is actually part of uh, a concept that I created a number of years ago and I trademarked called the mental well-being non-negotiables. And the reason I did that and I recommend it when I do, you know, my talks and things like that. It's not because I created it, but rather people tell me that it's actually useful because the wellness industry has often, uh, we'll call it a preset, um, you know, list of recommendations of what should make you feel mentally well. And it works for lots of people, but not for everybody. And so I think it's really important to think about what are the things that actually make you feel good that won't bring harm to yourself or other people that you actually enjoy doing? So it actually motivates you to do them instead of doing things that you feel like you should do, but you actually avoid because you don't enjoy. So for me, salsa dancing is is one of those mental well-being non-negotiables that I have to have in, in some form in my life, or I just start feeling really icky. And so when the pandemic happened, I said, well, salsa dancing is not exactly COVID friendly. So I have hardwood floors, salsa music, and a mostly willing husband, and that's going to have to do. <laughs> and, you know, for me, my mental well-being non-negotiables that help with my mental health are, are that being in nature at least once a week, and making sure that I play with my dog every day, you know, even on the days that she doesn't want it. And I think that people just need to find what works for them that they actually like doing and doing it at a cadence that they decide that they'll be accountable to do, barring extreme circumstances or death, dismemberment, hell or high water, and mm -hmm. not being afraid to just choose whatever that is. So, you know, if it's going running, a couple of times a week, or it's coloring, you know, into coloring books with your kids on Sundays on, on the carpet, or if it's, you know, dancing in your underwear to ABBA in the living room on Saturdays, you know, I don't care what it is, but just find whatever that is that makes you feel good and do it. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. I, I think one of the, there's a, um, uh, a researcher called James Gross out of, I think he's, he's, I think he's in Pennsylvania, I think. And he talked mm -hmm. about emotion regulation and, and how uh, there, there are sort of in his model, there are five um, families of emotion regulation. And one of those is called situation selection. And most people mm. use that as a, as a, right, what situations can I select out of so that I don't have to go and feel whatever it is that I want to feel. Mm. Um, and one of the things that he and I discussed when, when I had him on this podcast was how was the importance of selecting in to things to say, right, yes. I know that helps me. I know that's really restorative. I know that's something mm -hmm. that's really beneficial to me. So I need to select into that as well as maybe selecting out of those, I don't know, that relationship that, that, that brings me sadness or that, that meeting that I find really frustrating. Yes. Select oh, out yeah. of things if you can and select into, you know, select into things too, because that can be um 
that can be really helpful as well. I totally agree. And while I have a lot of, um, how do I say this, acknowledgement and respect for the power of the mind and how incredibly strong that can be when you are choosing to have a certain mindset or choosing not to think about certain things. And, um, but at the same time, you know, humans don't exist in a vacuum. We exist within the context of our environment and how we respond to stimuli. And so I think that when you can, trying to select into situations and environments that are conducive to making you feel good is is great. And I think it is a balance of both where you're trying to be in those scenarios that you will feel good and thrive while also trying to have some sort of influence over your mindset during that process. Yeah, definitely. And I think that probably takes us um, usefully into, into the conversation about emotion expression in particular, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because I think that that was, especially for me anyway, that, that restorative things I find really helpful when maybe I haven't had the opportunity to express um, mm-hmm. what I might be thinking or what I might be feeling as so I work it out, I suppose, maybe in, in a different way. Mm. Um, so what makes you really interested then in these kind of rules or expectations, um, that sit around emotions and emotion expression? So I take it down to really basic levels. Mm -hmm. And so I think about our ancestors, I'm talking before the invent of uh, our advent of language before social rules had developed before biases or expectations had developed and how much of all of that we have put on ourselves in the last few thousand years and go, gosh, how far did we evolve both in ways that are helpful and lots of ways that are destructive and unhelpful. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about again, with our ancestors, when they felt certain emotions, emotional regulation wasn't really a thing because they weren't aware of it. They were self-aware to some degree, but they weren't trying to regulate their emotions for really at all because there wasn't a purpose to like there is now. And so if you think about the rules and expectations that are surrounding emotional expression, it's a modern day invention. When I say modern day, I'm I'm taking into account, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of years of history longer than that. Yeah. But I find it incredibly interesting how we evolved from nothing at all, act as you please, because that's how we're wired to thinking of all of the ways that things could go wrong, depending on what we do or do not display. That's so interesting to me, all of the rules that we're constantly thinking of, some people more so than others, and how it just used to not be that way. I find that incredibly interesting as a as a social construct. Yeah, definitely. Me too. Um, so I suppose I'm wondering if I if if we if I take myself back to to that kind of ancestral or the ancestor frame around it. I guess, I suppose they must have had to do some kind of emotion regulation, do you think? Because and I suppose when I say, do you think? I, I'm thinking they must have had to have to do some kind of emotion regulation. So maybe not the 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 social expectations or the status expectations or the gender expectations or whatever that, that are, I agree with you with that the more modern and by modern with spanning hundreds of years construct. Um I suppose I'm thinking about maybe uh, if I didn't if I didn't regulate my fear, then I might not I might not freeze and stand still, which means I might get caught by a predator. If I don't regulate oh, yes. my anger, then I'm, I might end up harming you know one of my tribe type thing. Yes, most definitely. Um, yeah, I think from a survival perspective and from a collaborative survival perspective. Absolutely. I think I was more poorly trying to explain from a uh, moment to moment social interaction in a more granular sense. So when it comes to being in a tribe, 
or trying to avoid danger or threat or trying to maintain the rapport and safety in those basic social relationships. Absolutely. I think that where we are now in comparison to that is, is light years uh, ahead from that. Yeah, I, I agree. The contrast is, is, yeah, it's, it's huge. Extremely significant. Yes. But from a, a basic perspective for survival and social bonding, absolutely. I agree. Mm. Okay. And um, so a question that has, has occurred to me kind of, I guess now in this moment then is, um, uh, and I suppose I'm asking it from a slightly biased point of view, because um, part of what got me interested in emotion was when I I did something that, that went against those rules and expectations. So uh, I, mm. I did something in, in a job that I really should have been fired for. Um, <laughs> Because what I did was um, was it was against the I suppose not just only the rules and expectations, but also the not the societal ones, but also the the rules within the organisation. Basically, I swore at a customer and told her to <laughs> to, to, sh- to shut the something up and stop crying like. Oh something. boy! Um, oh boy! Whilst I, whilst I thought I was on mute and I wasn't, um, so I should have been. Oh fine. no! Oh <laughs> um, no! But I wasn't. <laughs> a bit of that sparks for me it was like this this quest. I suppose I could describe it as to to understand more about emotion. And so for for you and you're interested in um for your interest it did try that again so for you and your interest in this area then is it something that you've kind of fallen foul of in the past where you have um I don't know broken those unspoken rules or expectations and and maybe either got yourself into trouble or maybe been better as a result from it So I would say yes to all of the above because I um <laughs> I always joke with uh, one of my siblings that in our family, we would talk, we would talk about emotions, not show them. Ah. But because I was the one that showed them, I often felt like the odd one out. And so I think for me, even that interest sparked as a child where I would try to show this range of emotions. But when you have primary caregivers who don't, who may only display a couple of emotions, that can be kind of a natural friction or rift in -hmm. that family system, where it then leads the individual in the family system who is showing the, the full range of naturally programmed emotions to feel confused or inquisitive as to why that is an issue in in the first place. But you obviously, you know, your brain is still cooking until you're 26 years old. So you're you're not working that out until you get older, you gain insight and go through all those childhood development stages. Mm. But for me, that interest peaked from those situations as a child. And so, but then as I got older and I noticed in different systems, whether it was family or school or work, that there were only a certain set of emotions that were either socially acceptable or more comfortable to others to display. Mm-hmm. And again, I found myself feeling confused as inquis- and inquisitive. Why? If we have all of these emotions naturally, why are we only allowed to display 15% of them? That doesn't make sense to me. Wouldn't it make more sense to display the emotions that we are given for an evolutionary reason and to be able to just have them embedded into daily interactions. I, again, go back to feeling confused and inquisitive. And so there have been a variety of occasions where I was appreciative that I just said how I felt or showed how I felt And there were even others who said, you know, thank you for doing that because I didn't have the guts to. Or there were some occasions where, yes, it got me into um, a challenging situation or hot water, but I don't regret it because they were completely appropriate reactions at the time. And so fast forward to now, and I feel incredibly aligned in terms of when I'm honest about how I'm feeling. Granted, honesty in in some occasions is not always the best policy, but that is a podcast episode in itself. Um, It is. (laughs) Yes, it really is. um, And 
it's funny because there are, I'm sure, many AI programs that would agree with me that honesty is not always the best policy when you're dealing with humans. Um, but I feel incredibly aligned with not hiding how I feel, being mm. honest about how I feel, because it leads me to outcomes that are meant to occur and also helps me rest my head at night that I know that I'm being myself, I'm being authentic. People are not left guessing with me hardly ever. And uh, I'd say that on all the occasions where I felt I was being made to feel like I was wrong for doing that, that I'm very happy that I I stuck to what felt right. Hmm. And I suppose I'm, I'm putting myself in, in the listener's shoes, uh, partly because I am one, because I'm listening with you, <laughs> to say, um, so how, how did you get there then? So what might be some of the, I don't know, the the, the strategies or the mm-hmm. the approaches or, or the resources that you've used to, to mm-hmm. get yourself to, to that place? I've, I've asked a question, then I'm going to say something, and then I'll come back and ask the question again. Uh, and sure. I ask, I, I ask it because I can imagine that must feel quite liberating in a way to, mm-hmm. to not have to hold that, mm. that conflict or to hold that that incongruence mm. or that dissonance, maybe that might be a better word, that dissonance between yeah. kind of what you're feeling internally and what you're then, I don't know, allowed or, or permitted to express externally. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get yeah. back to the question then to say, yeah, what are there, yeah, I don't know, strategies or approaches or resources that, that have helped and supported sure. you to get to that place? So that's a really good question. I I think for me, uh, you know, a long time ago, I would say I definitely, and this is way, way before I, you know, went into the counseling profession. Um, I did my own counseling and I went mm-hmm. through my own therapy and understanding that these emotions are healthy to occur, why they occur, and just unpacking the unwritten rules and conditioning that I had been put through and being able to identify, you know, which parts of those were unhealthy, you know, what were the functions of why they occurred, et cetera, et cetera. And so really just starting with my own counseling. Um, And I did a lot of counseling uh, actually as part of my graduate school program, because it was actually mandated by the program that every person who's going through that program needed to do their own therapy. And I thought, man, that's, that's good that if, you know, you're teaching people how to do the skill set, they need to deal with their own stuff too. And so I thought that was a, a very good mandated requirement. And so for me, it was that. And then I would also say having different people in my social network as I got older who would also validate that it was healthy to be aligned with what you're feeling and that they would also be doing that. But I would also say that, um, what else would I say? I think even in present day, Mm -hmm. just talking about why that can still be a struggle to do, but why it's healthy to do. And using my own platform for that discussion. So I, especially in the past, let's say 18 to 24 months, have been trying to dig into that even further, especially when I'm posting on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. where I talk about why it can be really difficult to have certain emotions, but why it's healthy and constructive to not only experience them, but also to put that outwardly to others who might be going through a similar, you know, suppression process and they're looking for explicit permission from others that they don't have to. And so I think that another resource for me is just social conversation about how hard it can be to do that process, but why it's important to continue to do it. And uh, there's a lot of other <laughs> resources I'm sure I could share, but I would say that those are the those are the top three. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mr. Uh, some uh, some great yeah, some great learnings in there. Thank you. Sure. Um yeah, one of the things that, that really helped me was um and in a way I, I grappled with it for a while to think sort of was I being disingenuous or, or was I being was I kind of minimizing the emotion? And and to a certain degree, I, I think the answer I landed on was maybe. Um, uh, and it was, I started reading um, work by the US researcher called Paul Ekman, who's done a lot of research into emotions in general and emotion expression in, in the face in particular. Um, and one of the, the areas that he researched, which I found really, really helpful for me, was this idea of um, certain emotion families have certain universal triggers so for example if we looked at something like happiness it would be something pleasurable so something that you find pleasurable um mm -hmm. in whatever way it could be a smell could be a, a sight could be something you hear yeah whatever it is and, and if you find it pleasurable then that's going to bring happiness forward if it's anger then it's obstruction to a goal you know there's a goal there's something in the way the anger is the emotion can help you get over that obstacle or around that obstacle or, or to bounce back up from from the knockdown that you've had to, to get to where it is that you need to get to. Um, and there are seven sort of different emotions or states that, that he talks about having different universal triggers. And I find that framing of, for example, anger as an obstruction to a goal really helpful for me in mm. terms of when I could feel that frustration or feel that anger, then mm. I would ask myself two questions. And those would be, what do I want? Mm. And what's in the way? Mm. Um, and so when it came to then expressing the emotion, rather than saying, I'm angry because you're in my way, it would be, mm. what, I, what I really want right now is to get to this outcome. And I feel like this discussion is getting in the way of us getting to mm. that outcome. So what I'd really like to do is either close this discussion off or take it offline so that we can get to the outcome, which is to finish this meeting on time for example mm. um and and i use what i find quite helpful is using that language of the of the triggers to to make it i guess more palatable or more acceptable mm -hmm. for the expression mm -hmm. rather than saying the obstacle that you're putting in the way is making me really angry so that we need to get that obstacle out of the way or take it offline so that i can be happier again um yeah the the yeah the framing it in that way seemed seemed to you know, when i first started reading about it to be quite helpful for me because i could feel like i was expressing it and in a mm -hmm. way that was, I guess, less likely to make other people uncomfortable or or to maybe get me in trouble, I suppose, in a way. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I, The ones that I tend to... Oh, and this is actually another um, quite a big... Um, I wouldn't say necessarily a resource, but a practice that mm -hmm. I use is... And it's quite related to what you're saying is... Um, emotional contextual framing so what i mean by that oh, like is that. <laughs> if i'm feeling an emotion very similar to what you're saying i provide the context as to why so okay. let's say i'm feeling uh fearful i have become very comfortable at saying to someone i'm feeling anxious because i'm feeling nervous because I'm starting to feel angry because, mm -hmm. and so there is the outcome that I may share depending on whether or not it's appropriate, but also to give the, so there's something in counseling called um, secondary process where it's not about what you're talking about, but it's about zooming out and looking at the dynamic itself of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at that secondary process in which that content is occurring. So I'm feeling anxious because, you know, sharing about, you know, whatever content has been said or action has been done that has caused me to feel that emotion or the absence of something being done causing me to feel that emotion. And so it'll give the contextual explanation, you know, sometimes with or without the outcome that I'm looking for, again, depending on what's going on. But I often feel that giving that context is incredibly helpful because when people will display emotion, but not explain why it's occurring, you know, not everybody will know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because when we re when we react to 
others' emotions or to our own, those are really fast processes that occur. For some people, it's more of a slow burn, depending on the emotion, where it's a slow rise and then they're sustained for quite a while, particularly with anger or fear. But for some people, it's quite instantaneous. So developing the practice of trying to slow down to have the uh the is the term forethought i'm not sure what word i want to say yeah. but well, to, thought, to thought have the, works, the forethought to okay i'm feeling this way i have to explain to this other person why so we can do something constructive with what i'm displaying instead of having it go off the rails mm, i love that it's a tough practice to develop, but I have been working on it for years and, um, you know, getting others to do it depending on their motivation can be very easy for other can, for others. It can be quite challenging, but it's definitely a, a practice that you have to develop because our brains work really fast and so slowing down to to implement that process takes takes dedication especially mm. if it's not something that can come naturally to someone yeah definitely and um and have you found and i'm going to use the example of the emotional contextual framing um uh, only because that's what we i say only so i'm going to use the example of the emotional contextual yeah. because that's what we were just discussing yeah. And what I wanted to ask was more around how might that be different in the different geographies that you've sort of lived and worked in? So, if, uh, if you, so yeah, what, what differences have you found either with that particular practice <laughs> of emotional contextual framing or more broadly around emotion expression? What have you found, yeah, to be similar or maybe different across? Because I think you've, you, so you lived in the US, South Korea, England and Australia. I think you've lived in and you've traveled to more countries. Is that right? Yes. So I've lived in um, multiple cities in the United States, uh, London, uh, Seoul, South Korea, and Melbourne, Australia. And I've traveled to, gosh, what am I at now? 47 countries. Wow. Um, I'd love that to be 100 by the time I die, hopefully a long time from now. And oh, gosh, what an interesting question. <laughs> because... because um, you know, what's funny, I think that the explanation of why you're feeling an emotion is actually something that you're more likely to see occur in cultures or regions where talking about emotions or emotional intelligence or going to counseling is a potentially encouraged practice. Okay. Because when I was living in South Korea, now granted, I want to take time scales into account because that was in 2008. So quite some time ago. Yeah. And in certain cultures, displaying some emotions are considered to be socially inappropriate or selfish. So oh, okay. if you... So, for example, in certain cultures that are more collectivistic, like uh, many cultures in, in Asia, where the group comes before the individual, or you are constantly thinking of not bringing shame to your family based on you know public displays um, out in society, mm -hmm. you are less likely to see uh, a wider variety of emotional displays. And therefore, also not as much of a contextual explanation if you're not having the displays to begin with. So, but however, what I do see is that in some cultures, even if you are supposed to be mindful of how you conduct yourself in public, that the one that always seems to come through, and it, it, it might be with explanation or not, is anger. So okay. I because anger is something that just really can burst through uh sometimes without control of the of of said you know user mm -hmm. and uh i will distinctly remember that even though 
emotions weren't really talked about that much, you know, when I was living in Korea, that seeing displays of anger or frustration publicly is something that I I did see. And I thought, you know, how how interesting, maybe that's the one that's more socially acceptable that doesn't need an explanation. And then when it came to living in Australia, uh, and again, this was in 2006, mm-hmm. um, there wasn't a lot of a lot of talk about emotional displays or or context around feeling those emotions, because I actually felt that at the time, and I didn't recognize this at the time because I was just a university student. Hmm. There was a lot of unintentional toxic positivity, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, it's, you know, oh, no worries. Everything's everything's all right. You know, just do this. And we would interpret it as like laid back, no worries, you know, things are fine, which to a degree is absolutely true. But it also would then prevent other types of displays or contextual explanations that needed to occur because it was being stamped down by, oh, you know, hey, no worries, like just put it out of your mind. I'm only now realizing that as as an adult, you know, quite some time later. And then when I was in England, which was far more recent, that was 2017 to 2020, Hmm. the conversation about mental health was starting to bloom. And so that was a very interesting time because historically uh, in the UK, which is historically known slash stereotyped to be stiff upper lip culture, Mm -hmm. but that was changing quite drastically where it wasn't even just talking about general um, mental health and, and mental illness, but just talking about emotions and why they're healthy and normal to talk about and give those contextual explanations so that you're not avoiding that process and causing potentially bad outcomes down the line, like substance abuse or uh, disruption in in relationships or your career, things like that. So in the culture where as a foreign national, I was expecting it to occur the least, it actually occurred the most. (laughs) Mm. And I was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. And again, it's not something I ever would have known had I not been submerged in in the culture at that time. Yeah. And so I find that when it comes to emotional display and contextual explanation of said display, you are more likely to see that in cultures where emotions are talked about, mental health is talked about, counseling potentially is encouraged. Uh, and in more westernized cultures. And I will never forget uh, when I was living in London, we had quite a large number of friends who were Brazilian. And with what I had known at the time about emotional displays or how how those conversations occur around emotion in Latin America, mm-hmm. I had never known that in Brazil in particular, they talk about emotions all the time they talk about therapy like they're going they're talking about the weather oh, wow. and i was like what an interesting uh anomaly within latin america because you know i i had always been taught and when i had been you know researching in school that wasn't as likely in latin american countries for a whole variety of, of social reasons again looking at collectivistic culture brazil is not like that and so these these folks taught me about um, uh, discussions about emotion in Brazilian culture. I never would have known had I had I not met them. And again, based on what I had read in in, in what I thought were academically correct textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> so long explanation, but um, I hope that was um, was a cogent response. <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. Um, yeah, it was it was wonderful. I, I was uh, uh, I was lost in listening with you. So uh, no, it was, it was fabulous. So it ga- it gave me so an much. opportunity to say the word cogent. Can't remember the last time I said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and, and I think a, a question that that came to mind um, then as you were, as you were wrapping up was, um. So those those principles that you were sort of describing there around 
um, where discussions around things like um, therapy or and or mental health and or um, emotions are, are more sorry uh, when the when when those aspects around um, therapy, mental health, and uh, well-being are present in a culture, then it's more likely that your the emotional contextual framing is going to be kind of applicable or, or not applicable, sorry, mm-hmm. appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm then thinking about the different organisations and the different teams that I work with, and I wonder, oh, I wonder if that might if that might sort of also then feed through to to the different organizations that I work with. So for example, I work across a whole host of different sectors. I work in the construction sector, in the financial services sector, and, and a few others. And in a way, potentially maybe against a bit of the, the norm is mm. the discussion around, around around mental health and particularly the attachment of, of, of mental health to safety. So it's mm. physical safety, mental safety, as well as physical safety. Um, is meaning that in those construction sectors, which is where you might typically say, oh, people don't talk about emotions in construction um, because of the, and I think it's contextually relevant because the, the construction industry in the UK is, has, has a real, has had and continues to have a real challenge around suicide. So it's the, it's the most, um, it's the, the, the profession where people are most likely to lose their lives to suicide. So there's a lot of work going on to to shift and, and, and change it, um, to change the culture around, for example, discussion around emotions. Whereas in the financial services sector, sometimes I find it actually is even it's harder in some of those environments to talk about emotions because it's all, I don't know, numbers and finance and performance and statistics and, and those things. And you don't necessarily have those conversations around mental health, well-being, uh, therapy, those kinds of things. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm wondering th- from your experience, is that something, those principles that you're describing in within a glo- kind of a, a geographical culture, mm-hmm. do you see them as well in organizations that you work with and where you may or may not be more likely to, to be, ex- where people may or may not be more likely to express their emotions? Oh yeah. So I think that you have the personal rules that you subscribe to based on how you were conditioned in your culture, your family, any other external um, influences like the gender you identify as or sexual orientation. Um, But then when you go into a work context, (laughs) it sometimes feels like all bets are off. (laughs) So um, I think that when it comes to not only certain industries, but certain company cultures, Mm-hmm. that can be extremely influential. So if you're thinking about um, certain industries where showing emotional displays might lead people to falsely think that you are incapable of doing the job or that you are a bit of a loose cannon or that you are weak for showing struggle, one of my least favorite correlations that people will create in their minds of someone's character based on showing a, a completely normal human process of struggle. I think mm-hmm. it's it's interesting and really disappointing. Um, you see that all the time. So for example, in and it's really across the board. So it can be very high stakes industries like law and finance and medicine, but also you can have more of the uh, industry social expectations of certain displays or non-displays of emotions like in um, construction or mining or any of the tougher industries Mm. where it's focused on, let's say, a a physical result and less on conversation. So it's it's so interesting how it's not only the expectations from potentially an industry, but also into a company and how that tone is set by usually most of the people who have visibility and influence. Mm. So it's uh, it's all I tend to look at it all as um, systems within systems, because my graduate training was from Adler University. And so what actually I I often make the joke that um, Adler was alive at the same time as Freud, but never got the press like Freud did. 
Okay. And uh, it's true. Most people don't know who he is. And he's actually the one who is um, responsible for the concept of birth order. So how different siblings will act based on where they are in the chronological timeline of being born into a family. That that was him. Wow. So like middle chi- middle child syndrome, like that. That's all him. Or if someone is engaging in compensatory behavior because they might be, you know, lacking in a different aspect of their life. That that's him. And so I tend to look at people as they exist in in the systems in which they function. So a workplace is that. So you can have your emotional displays in your family system, in your social system. But then when you're looking at the work system, it's the industry and then go one level down. It's also the company. And then you can even go another level down into your team. Yeah, definitely. So it's all these unspoken (laughs) rules that we are often um, navigating. And it can be quite challenging when... There are, we'll say, a, a commonly commonly agreed upon set of behaviors or principles, and there might be a couple of people say, no, I'm good doing it my own way. And sometimes that can be uh, healthy because other people are repressed and or suppress, suppressing it, not doing it. But then there are some occasions where there are some folks that the displays that they are doing at work truly are inappropriate. There is a limitation just because we we can display emotion at work and should, there are some and also intensity of some that are also not appropriate. So it's very uh, situational and scenario based, which makes it even more complicated. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and as we start to, to pull this episode together to a close then, um. I suppose I'm I'm keen to ask maybe a, a reflective summary question that might be mm-hmm. um so if you had three recommendations for for our listeners then around I know we've covered a lot of ground as well today from tacos and salsa all the way mm-hmm. through to, to the different systems that we have in play in, in the workplace. Um if you, yeah, if you had three recommendations to to give to the sort of to share with the listener to say, you know, when we think about these unspoken rules and expectations that sit around emotions, my three recommendations would be. My three recommendations would be. It's okay to have emotions, but if you're Mm -hmm. going to show them, context is incredibly helpful. So that's Uh one. Yeah. Uh, the next one is, oh, these are, I want to make sure these are good. Um, honestly. So the first one would be. So the first one was okay to have emotions. And if you're going to share. Giving, giving context. Context is uh, really important, really helpful. It's critical. Yes. The next one would be. If you're going to have emotions and display them to others, it's important to understand and think about the moments where it's useful just to let them occur as they are versus when it's useful to try to regulate them. So what I mean by that is it's, it can be purposeful or constructive to show anger or frustration, but -hmm. thinking about to what level you need to do that to accomplish your goal. Okay. And the third one would be, if you have any sort of shame or guilt about experiencing emotions and showing them, I would have a very long, hard look at where that comes from, why it exists, and whether or not that internal belief set serves you. People carry these rules with them 
that they sometimes don't even know where they pick them up mm-hmm. and they still use them to their own detriment. So I would say if you're having uh, your own internal rules about emotional displays, I would be very clear about where they come from and if they're actually helpful. Wonderful. So can I summarize them uh, or, or share yes. them to see if I got them? Yes. So, uh, number one, it's okay to have emotions. Uh, and if you're going to share and express those emotions, then the context around it is critical. Uh, number two, if you're going to display emotions, it's important to understand and think about when it's okay to just let it happen as it is and when to regulate it to think about the goals that you might want to be achieving. And then three, if you have any shame or guilt about expressing any emotions, then having a long, hard look at where that comes from, why is it there, and how it serves you might be really helpful. You got it. <laughs> Brilliant. Perfect. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that sounds that just, yeah, that's a wonderful way, I think, for, for us to put it together, Melissa. I think those are three fantastic recommendations. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Oh. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so happy they're useful. And, you know, this, t- this stuff can be really challenging. And uh, it's it's such a journey when it comes to the awareness of these sorts of things and changing how you engage with how you feel and display emotions. It's a lifelong journey. And it, it is never too late to try to to learn some new tools, you know, even if you felt you hadn't been exposed to them before. And on that sentiment, then I think we'll we'll pull it together. Um, how if if our listeners wanted to get hold of you, Melissa, what would be a good way to to do that? So you can reach me through my website, melissadoman.com. I'm also on LinkedIn uh, with my regular name as being searchable, and then on Instagram at the Wandering Mill. And uh, if you are looking for any sort of advising or facilitation on mental health at work, team dynamics or communication uh, with a bit of uh, real talk, as the kids say, please feel free to reach out and I'd be happy to help. Wonderful. Fantastic. And we'll put links to all of those um, uh, into the show notes as well. So I think what that leaves me then is to say, is there something else then before we close, Melissa, something else that you're thinking, feeling or would like to say? I want tacos. <laughs> Brilliant. Love it. In that case, then, thank you so much for this. It's been great to have you on the Emotional Work Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Emotional Work Podcast. And if you got this far, you must be interested in the role that emotions have in the workplace, either within individuals, between people in teams, or in organizations as a whole. So head over to the Emotion at Work Hub, which you can find at community.emotionatwork.co.uk. Thanks for listening.